0: Mm. How exciting. okay good afternoon everyone ASS 233 this is lecture number eight for week eight and today I'm talking about a a certain type of ritual very common type of ritual known as a a rite of passage or in the French, Rite de Passage. Uh, This is a rite of transition from one stage to another stage. And this is a very, very major area of ritual practice. Uh, And interestingly, It's a a form of ritual practice that has a fairly common structure, and that's what we'll be looking at, the the, the common structure of this ritual practice when when you're transitioning from one state of being into another state of being. Now, I want to pick up uh, where I left off last week, and where I kind of set this up, set this discussion up last week by talking about drumming um, uh, and the role of the role of percussion in um, in rituals. Uh, it's one of the for example, where I've you know when I've done work in um, in Sri Lanka, uh, you can be out in the middle of nowhere. Not that there's much that you can call nowhere in Sri Lanka. It's a small place. Uh, you can be out in the countryside somewhere, and of an evening, and then suddenly you'll hear the drumming coming from somewhere nearby. Of course, in the night, it gets extended and you know that there's a ritual going on. As soon as you hear that drumming, you know that this drumming is part of a ritual. And drumming, as we learned last week, um, looking at material from West Africa, is critical in the ritual process, and it's critical to its rhythm. I picked up on the idea of of the importance of rhythm, the importance of music, uh in ritual practice and how it is for example that you go into a church service in a christian church service and you go in and one of the first things that you will do in certain religions certain um uh, religions is you will sing you will all sing a song now whether you're talking about um uh, a, a, a more contemporary church practice like Hillsong, uh, or you're talking about an older style practice like Roman Catholicism, they, they'll oftentimes start in this way. And so I'm, I'm, I wanna develop on that. I'm interested in, in how it is that in ritual practice, you create a separation from the everyday and that this separation then generates its own space and time, space and time unique to the nature of the rite itself. In particular, I I emphasise that the music of ritual is something that you experience in your body and that critical to much ritual practice is that feeling of transformation within one's own body. Now, this can range obviously from uh, uh, just a general feeling of discomfort. Uh, it might be that you you find that the engaging in the ritual practice is 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 physically uncomfortable. You're kneeling down, you're standing up, you're kneeling down, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera or you can be transported completely and associated with your ritual practice is indeed an altered state of consciousness uh or more commonly referred to as trance and so you'll find that there are certain ritual practices where the participants seem to be possessed um and possessed by gods and spirits as we saw uh with the ever um uh, described by friedson in that paper and so that you'll find that there are rituals where indeed people go into trance you have phenomena like uh what is known as glossolalia or speaking in tongues is the is the is the common term that's used to describe it and this is something that you'll see in certain in certain christian religions um, that celebrate uh, an event known as the Pentecost. and um, But you'll also see it in a Hindu temple, uh, such as the temples where I've worked, um, and in particular, uh, a temple for the goddess Kali, who I'll say a little bit about in, in, in a subsequent lecture. And there you'll find people going into trance, and as they go into trance, they'll, they'll start to speak. They don't speak in tongues. They don't speak some special language, some ritual language. They speak in ordinary language, but they speak as they are indeed possessed by spirits. So <coughs> you'll often time, and indeed, the drumming is critical. It's critical to that process, and I've done a lot of work with drummers Um, in Hindu temples talking about precisely that issue of the relationship between drumming and trance and so on. But what I want to talk about today though is a ritual where you often, you don't very often see uh, that kind of extreme embodiment of trance, but you do see extremes of embodiment but usually in the form of some kind of bodily mortification. And I'll explain what I mean by bodily mortification in a a short while. And that you see people acting on the body as part of the transformation, as part of the transition. Now for me, just a little personal note, and those of you who are sitting up in Burwood are actually, uh, oh well actually no. No, um, I didn't get to be an altar boy until I moved to Adelaide, and uh, and when I took on the job, I got to wear a costume, I got to be up the front of the church, and I had one job, one job. I had to hang on to this set of bells with my hand, and when the priest held this white disc up above his head, above his face, and he held it up to the sky. At that particular moment, I had to ring the bell like crazy. And that was my job, ring that bell at that particular moment. Now, the critical thing is that the ringing of that bell at that particular moment is associated with the transformation of that ritual object that the priest is holding up And indeed, why the priest holds it up is he's holding it up to heaven towards God. And so that it, that piece of uh, white disc that is actually made of flour uh, and water, um, is then transformed. And in the particular ritual that I participated in growing up as a Roman Catholic, because I did this thing, this this disc, this thing called the host uh, was understood to now be filled with the body of the God. So that when you mark that transition with the bell, you were marking the transition in the status of that object from an ordinary, everyday, worldly object, an object of the world, by which we also mean a mundane object from mundus, the world. A mundane object is transformed into a sacred object, into a holy object, uh, into an object that is, be, that is to be thought of and treated with tremendous um, respect. Uh, it's not meant to be handled um, and so on or played with or anything like that, and it's regarded as filled. With indeed some kind of sacred power or energy. Now the critical point is that the ritual process is a ritual process of transition, of of, of of transformation. Indeed, they call it transubstantiation. Is the word that they use for it, meaning that you're moving the substance from one thing to another. Highly, highly um, debated in the history of Christianity, there are major theological fights about what this thing is. Is it actually the body of the God or is it a symbol of the body of the God and so on? And you've got major reformation arguments about this, which I won't go into. I'm just interested in the fact that there I was ringing the bell and that bell and that percussion is the transition that marks the change. We see this routinely in forms of ritual practice whereby the participants in the ritual practice engage in some kind of action that separates them from uh, their everyday experience. And so that you're moving into uh, some kind of sacred space. Uh, you're move- and so you're moving out of the mundane into the sacred. And you'll find, for example, in that first picture on the top left corner is of a young boy uh, who's performing the bathing practices um, ahead of um, entering the mosque and and going for prayer in the mosque. And so the idea that when you go for prayer that you must cleanse the body um, with water. And so you'll see in mosques but they always have this uh, they have this practice and uh, this was brought home quite forcefully for me when I was a student at University of Adelaide because they had a, a thing they called the prayer room and the prayer room was just a room in the building in the student sort of union building um, and it was just sort of, sort of sort of oh there's a room and you can go and pray there regardless of what your religion is you can go and pray in that room and it had no facilities at all and I used to see this um the, i used to see there was also some squash courts and i used to play squash and and i used to remember the time when i'd be playing squash i used to see this guy from malaysia come in and he'd have to use the hand basin in this toilet the men's toilet he'd have to sort of lift his foot up and put it into the hand basin so that he could wash his feet so that he could go to this room and that was all they had by way of facilities There were no facilities at all that catered for a Muslim wanting to do their prayers. And so, and I didn't pick it initially. I used to think, what on earth is this guy doing sticking his foot into a hand basin and then plopping off with a wet foot wearing a pair of rubber thongs, plopping, (laughs) heading off down the corridor, and then it dawned on me. Oh, he's going for prayer. Okay, so you see that. And you see that in that picture of that young boy. The bottom right corner you can see um, very similar but a highly um, muted form of the same practice which is with two people entering a Christian church. So that's the picture on the bottom right of the two people and you can see that sort of column thing. There's, There's two, there's one on each side of the doorway and they kind of look like big giant bird baths but they're not bird baths, they're, they're people baths. And, and the idea is that the people who go in are meant to put their right hand into the water that's in there. And then with that water, they're meant to put it onto their body in a prescribed pattern. And that marks their entry into that space. And so it has a very similar, very similar practice uh, between the Christian practice and the Muslim practice. You also see it in in Hindu temples, too, where you should wash your feet and you remove your shoes um, when you enter into that religious space. Whereas in a church, we don't make that distinction. You'll see both of those people are wearing their shoes. You don't remove your shoes. But you will see, and it used to be very strong, it's a practice which has diminished quite considerably but it used to be the case when I was growing up, when you went to a Catholic church, that the women had to wear some covering on their head, usually a veil of some kind. And the practice of veiling in the Christian traditions, a practice which is, as I say, it's it's fallen into, into disuse, uh, is a practice which is still very strongly evident, though, in Islam. And, and so there are these striking parallels, which makes very good sense because they're so closely connected um but something that they seem to deny and then i'll just but just to throw things out a little bit I'm, i my other picture here is a picture from now a few years ago. This is a picture of people um going to an awards ceremony um the golden globe, so this is for theatre. Uh, film um, and television, um, mainly film though, the Golden Globes um, uh, prize giving um, and um, that's held in the US every year and there are four women um, attending the ceremony where these awards are given out. It doesn't have religious connotations. But you find a similar process of separation from the everyday occurring with a thing called the red carpet. And the red carpet is this magical space that they walk along and it separates uh, the person from the everyday world as they now enter into the space of that ceremony. This particular photograph I've got, people might recognize as As is one of the original moments in the movement that became known as the Me Too movement. This is where uh, uh, women involved in the movie industry in the United States suddenly started to speak out very loudly and aggressively um, about uh, stopping the kinds of uh, the levels of sexual abuse that occurred in that industry and were particularly associated with one Hollywood producer, uh, but not entirely. And that Me Too movement. And what they did on that particular awards night was they all wore black. And the idea was that you were participating in the normal process of separation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but you're adding to that um, by wearing black as now a colour of protest. This is so, so that these people were engaging in a further symbolic development on that process of separation. Now, all of these events or the, uh, in their own way, to different degrees, are examples of what we call a life crisis ritual where the term crisis is derived from the Greek word for a decisive moment or a decisive change or or turning point. So a life crisis refers to a major turning point in your life. It's it's not, you know, people think of crisis, they think oh my God, it's, you know, the end of the world as we know it, la-di-da-di-da, we've got the pandemic, crisis, we've got the refugee crisis and so on. In a sense, what we're talking about here is crisis as a, as a decisive turning point. And so when we're talking about life crises, we're not talking about, you know, um, say the crisis that some of you had getting your essay submitted uh, for the unit, you know, or the crisis that you had um, dealing with an illness or something like that. These can be critically important. I'm talking about those crises which occur in the course of one's life. Now the major life crises in the human existence are associated with birth and death. These are the beginning points and the end points in any individual life. You also have the life crises which occur within within that scheme of things. And these can relate to coming of age um, uh, the the sense of transition from from um, childhood to adulthood uh, the um, uh, they might involve the process of being initiated into a um, into a club or community um, whereby you you go from being a a junior person to a fully fledged member. Um, They can involve um, getting married as a life crisis Um, and the critical thing about these um, is that human beings have been taking note of them um, and marking them and acting upon them in ritual ways uh, for a very, very long time, which is why I've put up this picture here from a museum exhibition. And this is a museum exhibition which is recreating, with a little bit of license, recreating an 80,000-year-old burial site from Iraq okay from shanidar in iraq now what it shows is that this is relate this is drawn from an archaeological site and the critical thing about this archaeological site was that in addition to finding the remains of human beings and all of those human beings bodies were arranged in particular ways so their bodies had been lined up in the way that we see this um, representation of a body, uh, so it's a dummy, uh, the bodies were lined up uh, showing how the, bo- how the bodies had been set out. In addition to that, these graves from 80,000 years on, uh, ago also had the remains of, um, uh, of pollen uh, from flowers. And so the concentration of those pollen um, around the remains of the bodies indicated that they'd been put there deliberately and that in being put there deliberately, we can say this was a funeral. And the Neanderthal was, um, the Neanderthals buried their dead. And so they marked the transition, the life crisis of death with mortuary practices. Now you can think about that and then you can think about, you know, you routinely see these spaces, um, uh, cemeteries. You you know, we see them all the time. We oftentimes don't think twice about it. Many of us though might think twice about a relatively recent practice which we see oftentimes on the side of the road and that's where you see flowers on the side of the road and they've been put there deliberately and they're marking a tragic um, car accident. And this is a cultural practice which I would say 30 years ago it didn't exist in Australia. It's, it's a relatively new practice, uh, which seems to have come into Australia largely from South America. Uh, it's a practice that you'll find was very strong in South America, Mexico especially, uh, where you will mark the site of an accident, and this has come into um, this has come into Australian practice. And you see these sites. The interesting thing is that you'll find that they use flowers. Now you can ask yourself, oh, okay, now why do they use flowers for doing that? What is the nature of the symbolism of the flower in these particular life crisis rites? Now, the interesting thing is, and, you know, speaking as a a male, um, I can recall that when I was very young, um, I used to be able to um, slide down the banisters of staircases so I could throw my leg over the banister of a staircase and I could slide down the staircase and um, and then one day uh, I discovered that I couldn't anymore because it hurt and something was going on. Something was going on down there in my nether regions, so that my testicles were misbehaving, if I can put it that way, and uh, not long after that, um, hair started growing in very strange places. Now, for those of you who are male, uh, I think you'll think, oh yeah, this sounds familiar um and people started making comments oh his voice is dropping oh listen to that oh how cute as you're going along something you see (laughs) the register goes and whatever very different experience for women but you know the experiences that you have these bodily transitions happen you start as a woman you start to menstruate you start to develop breasts again hair starts growing in the most, well I can only say ridiculous places, um, says he, uh, for whom hair is also stopped growing in certain places to which we normally think hair should grow, um, and instead it moved, it, 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 (laughs) it relocated. Now the point that I'm trying to get at here is why would you bother, paying any attention to a process that's going to happen anyway. Life crises happen. You get born, you grow up, you go through adolescence, you die. Okay, so, it's so normal, it's almost as normal as going to the toilet. How come we go through these elaborate processes of celebrating the life crises in, in, in our lives, when they just seem to happen anyway. The critical issue is that yes, they just seem to happen anyway, but they take on the attributes of being chaotic. The feeling that they can go in any direction. We are in this strange condition where we don't know if indeed we are going to make it and become an adult in the way that we thought. It's that chaotic potential which is associated with the life crisis which says you know it's not as inevitable as we might have thought and so we'll act upon it anyway. Now some people take that some societies and cultures take that issue up far more problematically than others. In the Sri Lankan society that I know, for example, when a young girl starts to menstruate for the first time, she will go into seclusion to tell mum and mum will shut her away for three days. Uh, or thereabouts, and at that point the family, the parents of the girl, then hold a party. So when I started doing my field work in a village in Sri Lanka way back in the 1980s, one of the first things that happened was I was invited to a party to celebrate a young girl starting to menstruate. Now. I knew a bit about this activity, female reproductive, female um, cycles and so on. My mum was a chemist. uh, So I knew about things like um, sanitary napkins and I knew about things like the pill uh, and so on and so on. Uh, But I'd never gone to a party to celebrate it and I found it very odd. in my experience, because I think in our society, and I think it's a huge mistake, and I think we are beginning to change our ways, but it's tended to be something that we tend to suppress as if it's not there. But in other societies, it's it's dealt with differently. Death, however, presents, I think, a broad problem, uh, a much broader issue of the chaos and uncertainty uh, which is associated with the loss of loved ones. And so we find, for example, the mythologies regarding the location of the dead, where the dead go, the movement of the dead into the underworld or into the next life, ensuring that that process is indeed occurring, making sure that it happens in an orderly way. And so we find figures like the ferryman um, in, the mytholo- in the mythological um, space of the uh, sticks. But we also find, and this is a very interesting character in Japanese Buddhism, uh, and it's the character of uh, Jizo Bozatsu. And Jizo Bozatsu is a, uh, what is called a bodhisattva, uh, a future Buddha, uh, but who's still in the world. And he is the principal uh, figure who helps travelers, but also helps the souls of the dead transition into their next world. And this has particular bearing on children. So when someone loses, you know, the horror, and I feel for anyone who's had this awful experience of losing a child, um, and you'll find that for people who lose a child, in Japanese Buddhist culture, um, the child is thought of as a being who hasn't been able to live on this earth for long enough to perform good deeds and thereby ensure a transitional rebirth. And so they're stuck in some kind of limbo. And children in particular, when children die young, they're in this limbo. And the figure of Jizo Bosatsu, is a figure who was propitiated by Japanese Buddhists to help especially children. Now, in Japanese society, this has intensified over the last 50 odd years because of birth control um, and because of the need to, um, you know, the the cultural habit of having fewer and fewer children um, and then associated with that, uh, engaging in terminations of pregnancy. And these terminations of pregnancy in Japanese culture are dealt with by many people in a very, very serious way because they're thinking about the soul of the child. So what you see then in these funeral practices is, in a major life crisis, funeral practices, you see that the very active ritual engagement that ensures or tries to ensure the good transition. Now, switching from a serious and, and and also potentially, you know, for many of us who've lost loved loved ones, it's you know, it's, it's it's well, I'll be blunt and say it's fucking hard. Um and so, you know, I, I don't mean to distress people any more than I distress myself um for that one. But it's a big one. Obviously, you know, it's the, the problem that we have, the problem of death. Um then there's the more lighthearted stuff. So let's switch, switch it around, you know. And these are the lesser life crises, the smaller life crises, um rituals. Like the, the, uh, the rituals that are associated with what is called crossing the line. Crossing the line is a cultural practice that many, many, many navies of the world merchant navies and military navies of the world practice and it is an event when a member of a ship's crew passes with the ship across the equator either going from north to south or south to north but the very first time you ever cross the line on a ship that's regarded as the major significant event. And when the ship crosses the equator, the crew will make a performance uh, to and initiate all of the newbies, all of the people who've never done it before, are initiated. And so a couple of the crew members will 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 take on the characters of of the old man and woman of the sea. Um, and so you you'll get it buys into ancient Greek and Roman mythologies about the figures of the sea like Poseidon and so on and Neptune. And uh, and they become gods in this event and the newbies, the initiates who've never done it before, have to um, become the servants and slaves of the um these crew. Who are the characters uh, now presenting as the old man and the old woman of the sea? And so you'll get this um, right. The whole thing is meant to be funny. It's not serious, right? It's meant to be funny, but it does take on the attributes of the of an initiation. And these are, you know, this is an example of a very minor life crisis ritual. It's not the ritual that you perform to join the navy the process of becoming part of that navy again merchant navy or military navy but it's something that happens if and only if your ship crosses the line now in the australian navy i've been told that what they do if they know that the ship is going to cross the line in the course of its mission so you know it might be leaving australia and heading up and crossing the equator the Ships, cooks will create a special bucket for food scraps and old cooking oil, Um, you know, a, a kind of a glorious compost bucket, if you can imagine that. And they'll set one up and they will put stuff, every meal, they'll put stuff into this bucket. Horrible stuff, leftover stuff impure stuff you could think of it and then when they have the crossing of the line ceremony all of those crew members who are the initiates are all required to consume from the good from the bucket of horrible things so the whole idea is that they are totally debased and rendered into abject beings now interestingly if it so happens that one of the senior officers on that ship okay a figure of authority he might be the first lieutenant on that ship but it might well happen that in sorry his or her military career in the australian navy they've never crossed the line and it might be that the only other member of the crew who's in so to speak the same boat that is they've never crossed the line might be an ordinary sailor who's only just joined okay so now you think about this you've got the the ranking officer senior dude that you are meant to salute and respect and call sir and so on or madam and so on and then you've got the lowest most junior person of the all, but when it comes to the crossing the line ceremony they are equal. They are both of them initiates and they will be treated in exactly the same way. They both become abject beings to be treated as initiates and their eating of this eating, of this consumption of this horrible food and other stuff and it might just be poured on top of their heads or something like that. These actions that debase them are also designed to render them into um, totally subordinate beings, junior beings, newbies, neophytes. The crossing of the line ritual then is marking that transition from an outsider who's not really a a genuine member of the ship's crew because you've never crossed the line before to being a fully fledged member. And critically, your rank is temporarily suspended or postponed or put on hold and you then initiated and only after the initiation then does your rank re-emerge and become relevant again but for that particular moment you are their person they they own you very famously we can see you know it's somewhat um overblown um but in the old medieval traditions of knighthood and codes of chivalry and the idea of training a training a person for the knighthood uh, so this was the warrior cult, and in the idealized you know uh warrior cults um, of you know the stories, the glorious heroic stories of the knights, etc, you would see uh that they would go through a process of initiation where, on the night before their initiation, they would have to spend the entire night praying. In the chapel and this would be the overnight vigil where the young knight who isn't a knight yet but a trainee a novice um, would have to spend the night in the chapel praying to God with his weapons that he would indeed become a great warrior and a warrior for Christianity etc etc and at the end of that ritual at the end of that in between stage the vigil the nightly vigil that night of vigil at the end of it the uh the night would be then um consecrated as a knight. um usually involving in the case of the knight, um uh, a place uh, what, what was in some traditions where they would take the sword and then with the flat of the blade they would hit the side of the head of the novice. In other traditions, they would symbolically place the knight, the sword on each shoulder and move it across the top. So as I'm trying to show here, and that's symbolically decapitating the novice and then bringing them back to life in their new state. And so they undergo a symbolic death. And this is a critical element to these initiation processes, that there's some process of symbolic death or mortification which makes the transition from one thing to another. And associated with these, we find all manner of bodily modifications in initiation rites. These range from the circumcision, removal of the foreskin of the penis. In some First Nation Australian traditions, you'll also you'll see a practice known as sub incision, where indeed the penis, the base of the 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 base of the shaft of the penis is cut uh, open right through to expose the urethra. Uh, and then in other traditions, you see scarification. And um, some of you might have noticed, for example, with, um, with people from South Sudan who are now living in, in Australia, you might see some of the men, uh, not the younger guys usually, because they, they've never been, uh, the practice wasn't, wasn't available to them. But if you look at some of the older guys, you'll see horizontal scars on their forehead. And they've been through an initiation ritual where there's the scarification, so they use a blade and they cut these scars on the on on the forehead. It's a ceremony known as the gar ceremony, and that usually suggests the person is newer or dinka, um, and they've been through that. Um, you'll also see um, bodily piercing. That might well be, for example, that the septum, that that cartilage that divides the nostrils in your nose is punched through uh, with a bone and, and so incised and you'll find a piercing. You'll find other forms of piercing. Uh, in women's bodies there's the practice of infibulation and clitoridectomy in certain cultural traditions. Actually northern Sudan uh, you'll find uh, that sort of practice. Um, and so that these these are bodily mortifications that transition the child from uh, child into adult. Uh, then you'll find in other practices the bodily mortification involves physical beatings, teeth filing. Teeth filing is common, was common, um, still maybe I'm not sure. In Bali, for example, you'll also see traditions of, of tattooing. Um, and and um, where the tattooing is part of the process of initiation. In some male initiation um, practices, in organised male initiation practices, it, it's particularly in many parts of Papua New Guinea, uh, you'll find um, forms of ritualised homosexuality whereby the young initiate um, is required to ingest uh the semen uh of an older initiated male or um the older initiated male ejaculates the semen and is rubbed onto the body of the young initiate the idea there being that this semen is what strengthens um the male's body and um and this it's this process of you know using semen to enhance the maleness of the young male. Uh, who prior to that was considered to be neither male nor female. So it's, this is it's this idea of building up muscle uh, through through, uh, through uh, this ingestion. Um, now the question, you know, some people say, oh, well, why would they do this? And then you get your usual sort of crap functionalist arguments, which is, let's not look at what they're doing, let's look at its effect. You know, and the whole idea behind it is, oh, it's imposing authority, okay? So you impose your authority on someone by beating the hell out of them or by, you know, uh, or by removing their clitoris or by, you know, making them ingest your semen um, or something like that. And it's all about authority. There's no question that there are issues of authority here. Absolutely no question at all. But there's something else going on in these bodily modification or modification practices. And what's going on is the act of transformation. It's the act of transforming the body that is critically important in these initiation practices. You can see this, for example, in the US Marine Corps boot camp now if you've never seen a film about a us marine corps boot camp you, you, you can see it actually in kubrick's film full metal jacket uh, but you can also see it on these youtube clips um which i must admit i you know speaking personally i just say i don't think i would have made it as a us marine because i just would have been laughing um because these people this is you, what you can see in these Marine Camp Boot Camps. You can see the origin of uh, certain types of metal, um, deaf metal singing. Um, and what amazes me about these people is that they scream and shout at each other for about six weeks. Um, and um, and I've, looked, I've got the link up there. Check out this boot camp. And here's a piece of exegesis from it where one of the Marine drill sergeants says they will be broken down and rebuilt from the ground up. And the whole idea about these boot camps is precisely in the logic of bodily mortification and transformation. You know, and it's this whole notion of make or break but you must surrender yourself totally to the authority of the initiator. Less painful, but you find the same processes, is in something initiation, as uh, for example, in a wedding ritual. In the wedding ritual, you find the bride is put into a special ritual costume a special ritual costume which takes on all of the attributes of that life-death relation of the initiation process. The wedding dress uh, and especially the death shroud, known as the veil, um, is these are powerful symbols of death in, uh, in, in the Western wedding. And the, the, and I love it. I love it. People spend thousands of dollars on basically a funeral costume. I mean, it'd be a hell of a lot cheaper to buy a coffin and get wheeled up in the coffin, because and then you can keep it for later use. But, oh, no, you get into your wedding dress. But it's got the same logic. The critical thing, though, is that the wedding dress is taking you in transition from being single to being married. And the purity of your singleness which many people associate with virginity but it's not about virginity whether you've had sex or not it's about your being not married and you then become dead not married and reborn married in the wedding rite and um, uh, it's not necessarily involves beatings, piercings, infibulations, and so on, but you can still see the symbolism of of uh, of, of mortification in a ritual like a wedding. Now, for Arnold van Genet, uh writing in the early part of the 20th century, what fascinated him? You can sort of think of him and say, golly, he was kind of like a Joseph Campbell uh, to mythology with Arnold Van Gennep to Ritual. Because what he said was, you know, they've got a really common structure. They all work in the same way. They've got three phases. The person gets separated from their normal existence. They're then placed into this in-between space the threshold zone, the, or what is known as the liminal, from the Latin limen, meaning threshold, and after a time in that threshold space, they are reintegrated into the society. So, and so we find the young knight is removed and made to bathe and then has to do the overnight vigil in the chapel. This act of bathing is very common. Very common in the process of removing you from your previous existence. And then after the overnight vigil, the knight is dubbed. The young novice is dubbed with the sword and made into a knight and then there would be a party. There would be a feast and then there would be play fighting in the forms of tournaments and special challenges and so on. And so you see separation, the bath, the removal, liminality overnight in the chapel and reintegration, the feast and the tournament. In a wedding, what do they call the meal? That was the traditional name for the meal after the wedding ceremony. You know, why we all go for the food and the drink? What's it called? The wedding breakfast. That is to say, it breaks the fast. It's the morning meal, but you never have it in the morning. No, you have it at six o'clock at night. It's a big full-on dinner celebration that you'll have, but you call it the breakfast because it is the break of day. It's the new day. It's the new day for the couple that that you're participating with. Now, Victor Turner, in his essay, Betwixt and Between, picks up on the issue of this liminal phase and he says let's look at the symbolism of the liminal phase because it's in the symbolism of the liminal phase that we can see really major cultural values being um, promoted And, and then we stop and think oh yeah okay in the in the terms of a wedding for example It's all heavily focused on the transformation of the woman. Heavily focused on that traditional wedding. Heavily focused on the transition of the woman from girl to uh, woman. And um, that is very much a female initiation. Then there are male initiation practices that are built around it. Um, And then we have contemporary weddings where everything gets gets completely (laughs) mixed up in an egalitarian mess of everybody's male, everybody's female, but that's the nature of contemporary Australia. Very interesting in and of itself, but not the key point here. And so we find the liminal phase um, is absolutely central and oftentimes in our mythical traditions, going back to Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces, That there is always a liminal phase in uh, the heroic transformation as well oftentimes involving the hero going into the underworld and the liminal phase of the hero's journey into the underworld is indeed the movement into that liminal phase. Here I've got the YouTube clip of Luke Skywalker being trained by Yoda, being initiated. And this is a, that that particular scene, and you can watch it again through that link. That particular scene is a very, very powerful use of the symbolism of the underworld as the liminal phase. But in this particular basically written and based on Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, that's all about the unconscious. And so in, that, in the Star Wars initiation, the, the liminal phase is indeed the unconscious. And now you can begin to see where I'm going with this. That we're seeing the confluence of myth, the abyss, the chaotic, and the liminal. And that they all share attributes in common, and that they're all part of creating creating origins or re-originating, and that rites of passage are precisely rites of renewal that pick up with pick up on the concept of the chaotic abyss in myth, but now they transform it into ritual practice. And then just as an aside and my last point, almost almost last point, um, you find also uh, heavily um, involved in, uh, in life crisis rituals, um, heavily engaged, heavily invested in life crisis rituals, are forms of organisation that Irving Goffman referred to as the total institution. Total institutions places like prisons, army boot camp or marine boot camp, um, but also hospitals, especially um, mental hospital, psychiatric hospitals, which is where Goffman did his famous piece of study for a book called Asylums. And this is where he developed his concept of the total institution. In a total institution, you are completely subject to the institution. You have no freedom to be yourself. You are a being of the institution. And as that Marine Sergeant said, there is no I at boot camp. You You are not a person anymore. And you find in total institutions, in modern cultural practices, total institutions like prisons, ships, boot camps, etc. They all use the logic of initiation and ritual transformation. They all use that same logic, oftentimes associated with certain types of brutal bullying, um, brutalizing, hazing, uh, and so on, as part of the process of breaking the person down and then rebuilding them as a new being. And so we find the liminal is always around us as that chaos of eternal recurrence. But now, and this is my last point, now engaged actively in ritual practices and the rites of initiation. And that's what we're looking at with Vic Turner. So when we study the liminal, when we're studying liminality, I want us to think about how we are studying forms of practical chaos if I can call it that. Okay, that's my lot for today and I will speak to people in seminars later and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Okay, all the best, bye bye everyone.